0: Welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette, featuring cis Admin expert Don Pizzette, security specialist Daniel Lowry, and Peter.
1: Hello, and welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette, the 201st episode. We're dealing with the hangover from the, from the big uh, 200th extravaganza, and
2: I am joined, as always, by Don Pizzette. Don, how are you doing? Hey, uh, you know. I think we kicked out all the stops for our 200th episode, so I'm ready to just kind of phone this one in. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. And, uh, well, speaking of phoning it in, Daniel, you know, is, is still uh, just
1: kind of reeling with a headache, I think, from that. So uh, we, we tapped in Ronnie Wong. Ronnie, how you doing? I am doing well. And, yes, I, I think Daniel is still kind of uh, dragging along a little bit,
0: so... Uh, I'm, I'm still here. So I'm... It was smart
1: of him to plan a vacation after that episode.
0: It is amazing how he did that. Yeah. No, kind of he... said, forget the rest of it. I've hit the 200. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm out. Either that or, or was
1: he fired for anything he said on the show? <laughs> I didn't know that could have been it as well. And uh, we are joined also this week by Ravi Dudakuru, who is the Chief Product Officer for DevGraph. Ravi, how are you doing?
3: Great, great, Peter. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm fantastic. And you're joining us all the way from India. So thank you so much for... Uh, dealing with the time zones and uh, and joining us for this episode but uh we want to find out more about you we want to find out more about devgraph so let's go ahead and just uh just jump right in with our first segment rapid fire questions who do you work
0: for what's new who are you what's happening what's wrong with
1: you
2: All right, Ravi. What we're going to do in this segment is throw questions at you quickly. You'll see a one minute, or actually you'll see a timer of some (laughs) sort appear on the side of the screen. You'll have one minute to answer each question. If you take too long, Peter will buzz you like this. And then we'll move on to the next question. Uh, We're going to rotate through each of us the first question coming at you from Peter. I still don't think I've buzzed anyone ever, but
1: the threat (laughs) is there. Uh, So the first question is, uh, Ravi, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of DevGraph for those that haven't heard of it? Uh,
3: DevGraph is... An integrated set of software development tools have integrated automated. The whole idea being we make it faster for you to develop applications and while preserving or improving the quality of your application. So, you know, think of it as in two parts. One is the development part. The other one is the deployment part. And in development, for example, we have a product called Dev Spaces. You literally click a button. In 10 seconds, you have your IDE up. This is truly your VS Code IDE in the browser you're starting to code in 10 seconds. That's how you kind of make it faster. And then code review, code fix, code coach, bunch, bunch of these products that help you improve the quality. And then the second portion of graph, which is the deployment portion truly is about how do you run an application on the cloud? How do you deploy it? How do you plan it, scale it? And then how do you actually migrate an on-prem application to the cloud? It's, it's really development, deployment, everything end-to-end. Full life cycle covered, integrated tools. That's really the goal here. All
2: right. Now, Peter has been teaching me how to cyberstalk people. And so (laughs) I was reading your bio on the site. And DevGraph has a number of different products. You mentioned on the site that one of your favorites is a product called EngineYard. So what what is that and what does it do?
3: So EngineYard is platform as a service. Uh, What it really means is if you want to deploy your application on the cloud, Then you got to go through a bunch of processes. You have to set up your EC2 server. You have to, you know, set up your configuration, S3, all of this stuff, which requires DevOps expertise. So what Engineer does is you give it an application. You literally say, "Here is my application. I call it Git push." And once you push it, Engineer takes care of deploying the application, running, managing, scaling, supporting all of that for you. That's really why I love this. Of course, you know, don't get me wrong. I love all the details and scalability of the cloud. But when it comes to real applications, nothing beats Engine because it's just one click, get push, and you're done. All
0: right. You started uh, as a Java programmer back in JDK 1.1. 1. 1. Do you feel like that the DevGraph graph tools uh, have addressed the issues that you face as a programmer over the
3: years? I really hope nobody knows how old I am based <laughs> on the JDK 1.1. 1. 1. It feels like a long time ago. But, you know, uh, uh, two things, though. JDK won that one was real simple. There was no, you know, not even servlets maybe. Then JSP, EJB, bunch of this stuff. It was super simple. But then since then, the complexity has increased. Uh, so we do address complexity. Whether you hear about engineer or DevGraph as a cloud, we do address the complexity and try to simplify everything for developers. So that's you know, that that pain point is something we certainly address. And in terms of the tooling for developers. It it evolved a lot more and the tools that we have now is a lot more advanced. So it does applica- uh, uh, address the developer pain points as well.
1: So I'm curious, I work a lot with the uh, Adobe Creative Suite and, and those products. And, and I read that you were actually uh, used to be with Adobe and you were involved in that transition uh, when they moved everything to the cloud. So what was the most challenging part of that project? And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about cloud migration in a second, but specifically with the Adobe project.
3: Yeah. So, you know, I'll tell you a little story. So it was, we had the idea, we knew what we wanted to do, had the plan. We said, we called it creative cloud. The first moment we went to customers, they're like, whoa, whoa, what is this cloud? I know I like cloud, but are you gonna put Photoshop on the cloud? I don't think it can handle my photos or my videos, right? People have that shock on, you're not changing my world. But then the most important thing is focus on what is the benefit of the cloud. Like you're working on your iPad, you go to your desktop, all your assets get transferred, your color palettes get transferred. That's what we really want to do. But when it comes to the customer, they might actually think, oh, why are you changing my world? So the most challenging part when you go to the cloud is to understand what we are really doing and what benefits you get out of it. And as long as you focus on it and not change user's world too much, I think you're going to be great.
1: Makes sense. Now, I'm curious also with any time that someone started out as a developer and then kind of moved up into, what did I say? You're chief product officer now. So you're dealing with paperwork and and employees and th- those kinds of things. Do you still find time uh, to code either either for DevGraph or in personal projects?
3: Well, I do code. I do code, but not, not Java so much, but it's more around Python. That's one thing. But the second thing is though, It's a lot less about application programming nowadays. It's a lot more about cloud, understanding those components and really assembling applications out of all these cloud components because the layer of abstraction now is much, much higher. You have everything in the cloud. You you just need to focus on assembling your application, your business value. That's where I spend more of my time now.
1: Not as fun, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's just fun to just get in the code and play with that. But, all right, well, I I did tease a little bit that we're going to talk a little bit more about cloud migration, and that leads us right into our next segment perfectly, which is science and tech news.
0: Stay tuned for science and technology. And now back to the anchor desk.
1: Thank you. All right, this article comes to us from VentureBeat.com, and Gartner predicts public cloud spending to reach $332 billion in 2021. And just to give that a little frame of reference, uh, let's see, that would be an increase of 23.1%. Uh, from twenty twenty, where cloud spending was about two hundred and seventy billion, so it's uh, it's a rocket. It's uh, well, as they say on the internet, it's going to the moon and doesn't seem to be stopping. So I'm curious: is uh, you're involved in a lot of that? You, you know, did it with past companies and, and continue to do it now? Uh, is is the move and, and the the point of cloud migration still mostly just saving money, or what are the other benefits for that?
3: Oh, uh, oh, that's a that's a. Very nice question, and it actually is different from what it used to be five years ago. Five years ago, all you did was save costs. You didn't want to deal with hardware. You didn't want to deal with even sysadmins, right? Uh, and then, you know, over-provisioning your data center. That's what you're trying to deal with. But now I think, if I if I think about cloud migration today, it comes in three different steps, which is important to understand what you really want to do. Number one, cost savings For sure, you're going to have some. But if that is the only reason, there are things like you can do lift and shift. Instead of putting it here on the data center, you put it in the cloud, exactly the same thing. That's fine. The second, though, the, the you know some one of the interesting things that's happening, you might say, hey, uh, I'm moving to the cloud, not just for cost, but also for scalability. You know, Christmas season, I want to go from 20 servers to 100 servers. You're able to do that seamlessly. But then scalability comes at certain cost of now i need to tweak my application that's the only way i really get to make the application scale the third which is even more exciting is you get you know both the cost savings scalability and the third is now you're able to use cloud native components for example you want to have a customer audience manager that's built right into aws you can just connect your data to the audience manager and then start using it email marketing transactional emails all of these things are in the cloud you just have to start connecting it. that's the third level of how you move to the cloud migration so as long as you know which one you which level of benefit you want then you can plan accordingly and go from there
2: you know one, one thing i've noticed is that uh you know companies were slow to adopt the cloud when it first came out right there's hesitancy trusting somebody else to completely host your environment but I, I feel like as people move more and more towards web applications, that removed that obstacle. People became more, you know, it's a web page you browse to. There's your application. You don't really care where it's hosted anymore. That that removed a lot of the tension. But I, I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is, because especially with your background with Adobe, where Adobe has a huge cloud presence, but you still have to download this very thick client to run locally on your machine and then connect up. So... Web applications, to me, seem like what's really fueling this move into the cloud. Would you, would you agree that's what's happening, or does it really not matter?
3: Uh, kind of yes and no, Don. W- what happens there is, in terms of you articulating or ideating the value that you derive from the cloud, Adobe is a lot more about connected devices. Whether you're on an I- iPad versus on your Mac or on your desktop, or you move from work to home, you're creating everywhere. So the cloud is used there in that context as a connective tissue, not so much about does your Photoshop application itself live in the desktop or in the cloud. It's more around cloud is the connective tissue that completes your workflow from A to Z. That's really how you use in that flow. But in case of developers, right, software development, if you really don't have to code everything on your desktop, for example, we have a team, all it does day in day out is fixes bugs. Then you don't need anything on your desktop. You literally click a button, it opens the IDE in the browser, you debug, fix the bug, and done. Just check it in directly from the browser within two minutes or five minutes, however long it takes, you're done. You don't have to worry about setting up an environment. So it really depends on what you want to achieve with the cloud value. Cloud value is more around presence. It's always available. That's really the value there.
1: So in this article, I noticed um, that desktop as a service is a very... Small part of this, but it kind of sounds like what you were saying is that you know we, that might be an area that's growing as well. That you've got less on the actual you know hardware side and and uh, and you're relying on more of that. Do you see that is being one of the big areas of, of cloud growth in the next few years?
3: I actually uh, think about a few things. Right, desktop as a service. I mean, it's not it's not really that big. But two two points I want to drive home. One is that your development environment is moving more and more to the cloud. You don't necessarily have it on your desktop. You can have it on desktop as a service, or you can have it literally in the browser. It doesn't even have to be a desktop as a service. But the Uber point is the productivity. How fast can you take your application to the market? That's one thing that's happening. And second thing that's happening is, you're almost like anybody who's adopting cloud today, are writing applications for the cloud. They're more focused on cloud native. And in that case, figuring out how you migrate the applications from on-prem to the cloud, and then database migrations, terabytes of data, how do you migrate to the cloud? These are more critical things to evaluate. Those are the ones that are going to grow in value. Desktop as a service is an essential offering. That itself, I, I don't think it will grow a whole lot.
2: You mentioned moving the development environment into the cloud, and, and actually you mentioned it a few moments ago when we were talking about DevGraph as a whole. Uh, I, I've seen solutions like this before, like Amazon's Cloud9, where the entire dev environment is is hosted, so you, know, you, you jump in there and you start coding. And I, I'm not a developer. I, I write the occasional Python script to automate something, and, and that's about it. So I saw that solution, and I thought... Well that's neat, and then proceeded to not use it because it's easier to, you know, whip something up in a text file on my own computer and run it just doing it all locally. So that that's my perspective, like a non developer. But what are you seeing in the developer space? Are are developers migrating towards these tools? Are they okay with that? Do they do they like that idea of having their entire IDE in the cloud? Yeah, or are
1: they as hesitant as it as you said, like the uh, Adobe people are, you know, in, in, in making that change because they're so used to a, a, a system?
3: Yeah. Uh, it is. At the end of the day, it is the developer preference, but there's no denying that down uh, Absolutely not. Uh, what we're seeing, though, is you're a developer, you work on an application for six months, three months, or nine months, a longer-term project, and that gets bundled up and deployed as a cloud, you're more likely to stay on the desktop, because it's one project, and it goes for a long time, and it gets bundled before it gets deployed. But then there are use cases that are popping up. One is that you switch between the applications. Imagine, right? You you're switching between you know, Java 1.8 and 1.9. Then you're going to have conflicts on your desktop. But if it's cloud, it's you know, pure clean development environment spin up in seconds. You try to do that on your desktop, it's going to take a few days for you to set it up. So those and then the second use case that's coming up is there are a lot more serverless applications or microservices is what what some people call if you're developing for those it's a lot more convenient to have your ide in the cloud so that you can collaborate with other people and test it right there because you can't really test your microservices on your local machine. that's not convenient so th- those are the use cases where we see a lot more people moving to the cloud-based development environment
1: we we mentioned earlier uh, devgraph so head over to devgraph.com to check that out and we, and we talked about engineer being your favorite part of it but there's a new aspect to Engine Yard, uh, Engine Yard containers. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about that, that new launch?
3: Yeah, uh, Engine Yard has always known to be platform as a service. What it really means is you bring your application, Git push, and you're able to deploy applications without any DevOps expertise. You don't have to figure out what's under the hood, write all the scripts to deploy it, just Git push and you deploy. The new offering, which is Engine Yard containers, is now the underlying infrastructure is container and kubernetes based what that means is it's a lot more scalable your applications are running in containers and it scale instantly in seconds and minutes you know a lot faster than ec2 instances and then we have a layer of abstraction where you can provide provision all aws infrastructure directly from your engineered dashboard with one click of a button so the whole integrated cloud based development without a whole lot of learning devops devops kind of stuff that that's what really Engine Yard containers is about go check it out at EngineYard.com. super excited
1: yeah definitely i was going to mention that you can you can find it at DevGraph.com, but it's got its own website as well Engine graph or excuse me engineyard.com so uh, head over there and check it out and, and uh, looks like a cool system so uh, thank you so much Robbie, for taking the time today to to jump on and uh, and tell us about that and and offer your insight
3: Thanks a lot. Thanks, Peter, Ronnie, and
1: Don. Yeah, definitely. And stay tuned, guys. We're going to uh, take a quick break, come back with the news on TechNATO with Don Pizzette.
3: How do IT leaders stay on top of their game
0: with the IT Pro TV webinar series? Twice per month, IT
2: Pro TV presents a webinar on current topics in the IT world. What are some of the key things we should be doing in our organization to make sure that we're prepared for disasters? And then, that... so what do you say we go ahead and get started with today's topic? How to train your end users, G So, we're going to talk about some of the major things that you need to do to help keep your people safe while they're working remotely.
0: You can catch IT Pro TV webinars live or watch it on demand when your schedule permits. See them all. Visit itpro.tv slash webinars today.
1: All right, welcome back to TechNado with Don Bazette, and thank you so much to Ravi for joining us from DevGraph and telling us all about that great stuff. And uh, we've got a lot of news to get to, so we're going to jump right into that. Our first article comes from pharonix.com, Ubuntu 21.04 released with Wayland by default and a new dark theme. New dark theme just seems to always
2: be the thing they, f- they focus on, like... Yeah, th- the pointless feature. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: I but mean, people
0: love dark themes people for love one it. reason or another.
2: We, we're slowly devolving. A few years from now, it'll be like, Ubuntu 25.04 comes out with new wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one has a new wallpaper. and A, a nice uh, hippo does. down there. It does. Uh, they've continued their series of wacky names uh, and moved from... Oh shoot! What was the last one? I don't know something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did they go down the alphabet? Is it? Yeah, down? they okay. go alphabetically, and so Danger Duck or whatever. <laughs> it yeah. just kind of progresses. Uh, oh, actually, it was Focal Fossa was the uh, the last one. Well, Would there be a G Wait,
0: in isn't there? A G?
2: Oh, that's a good point because I'm I don't know much about technology,
1: but I'm familiar with the alphabet. So <laughs> no,
2: well, now no, I'm curious what twenty point ten was. Twenty point ten was the last release. But anyhow, point is twenty one point oh four is out. Groovy Gorilla. Groovy Gorilla, I must have skipped that one. So, uh, 21.04 is out, and uh, you know, a lot of times I'll skip some of these non-LTS ones, right? So, yeah. the long-term support, Focal Fossa, was the last long-term support when they came out. Uh, 21.04 is not LTS. So this is a short-term support. It's only going to be supported for six months. Uh, it'll be replaced by 21.10 later on. 22.04 will be the next uh, LTS. But the most notable change on this one, Peter actually mentioned it, is that it will use the Wayland desktop compositor by default. So uh, there has been a shift over the last 10 years as the various distros have moved away from Xorg as the the window manager, not window manager, but the uh, compositor, and moved over to Wayland. Uh, it breaks a lot of stuff, <laughs> but... Xorg is no longer actively being developed, oh, and so it's okay. kind of like you've got two bad choices right now, and people have been hesitant to, to switch.
0: Yeah, no, I, I saw, as I was reading through the article, where they were saying, look, you you of course it's going to be default, Wayland, but you can always switch back if you want to, so... You're just switching from one bad choice yeah. to
2: another? Well, sort of. Uh, so it's it's not it's not that they just support the old one, but it's actually installed by default. Yeah. So uh, when you go to log in on 21.04, it will default to Wayland. But right there on the login screen, you can switch to XORG if you want and get logged in. Uh, what we find is that XORG really was developed back in the older days when it was a more trusting world. So it has very poor security. Uh, it allows you to do screen mirroring and things which now needs security attached to it. Well, people have gotten used to that. People like being able to easily connect to a Linux box and and move the graphics across an SSH tunnel to a remote machine and all that fancy stuff. Well, a lot of that's broken under Wayland. And so if you use those features, Wayland's a bit of a pain. But if you don't use those features, Wayland renders faster, has less screen tearing, supports more monitors and resolutions. So there's a lot of big benefits to it. Fedora moved to Wayland by default several years ago. Now Ubuntu is starting to do it. Now Focal Fossa still defaults to XORG. But when 22.04 comes out, it looks like we can expect Wayland to be that default.
0: So is that change really major to any particular thing like you would actually do on a daily basis that it would move to the default?
2: Yeah, so if you if you require uh, 3D rendering, right? So if you've got like NVIDIA cards and you're using their driver, it's a different driver for Wayland than XORG. So you know, you've got to make sure you've got that hardware support. Uh, if you use software like VNC or any kind of screen mirroring, it's got to be updated to support Wayland. Uh, VNC already has if you use real VNC. But some of the open source ones... Those have not been updated yet. So you have to look at the software you use and determine whether that's going to break. So two
1: questions. First of all, you said LTS a couple times. I want to make sure I knew what that was.
2: Long-term support. Okay, so So one that
1: they'll actually support in the future
2: yeah they, they release one every two years and, and you don't even have to upgrade then because they support it for like 10 years so you, you can go a long way without having to, to update to a new version with ubuntu uh, but the short-term ones you get six months great
1: and the second question i had uh wayland is that uh, was wayland jennings involved with that
2: <laughs> i think scott wayland from uh Stone Temple Pilots. Oh. <laughs> okay. Actually, I have no idea why it's called Wayland. I should probably look that up. Wayland Jutani. They build better worlds.
1: Actually, I did check. It's it spelled different than Wayland <laughs> So, but uh, yeah, so, I mean, key takeaways there dark mode. Yeah, dark, dark mode. mode. <laughs> it's sweet.
0: Dark mode's on everything now. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't have dark mode, then. Yeah, even websites. I went to another website and was like, you want to switch to dark mode? I was like, Why? So we,
2: we've, we've got light mode, we've got dark mode. A few years from now, gray, what do we get? Brown mode? Gray mode? Like, yeah, just. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't. I mean, like from a design perspective, just kind of letting the letting the customer control that. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a limit there.
2: Like, I, I like Apple's light gray text on a white background Isn't mode. That mean, that's that's yeah, my favorite. That one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I make it legible. All right, well, uh, our next segment is actually one of our favorites, and uh, it is Tin Foil Hat Time. <laughs> ah. The moon landing was fake.
0: Paul McCartney's been dead since 1966. Dogs can't see color. 5G causes syphilis. Do you understand that?
1: All right. Well, the, the government <laughs> obviously does not want me to know about this article because it's behind a paywall on The Washington Post site. But I do have the headline here. Minutes before Trump left office, millions of the Pentagon's dormant IP addresses sprang to life. And I did read a little bit about this on, I think, Ars Technica that had a good write up as well. But uh, but, yeah, we're looking at The uh, Washington Post was the one to. To kind of talk about this wait, wait a minute peter I, yeah. th- this
2: just in i got some breaking news Uh-oh. uh technology called an ad blocker has been invented and it supposedly will allow you to read articles again well, look i'm in marketing <laughs> and it seems like really against you know what i
1: stand for <laughs> okay. I'm, not, I'm not a thief well i suppose that's true <laughs> but anyway uh so First of all, so the, the Pentagon basically had all these IP addresses that they just weren't using, that they yes. were just kind of stockpiled, so, and now they don't?
2: You know, so I've already mentioned the earlier days of the internet, right? So let's, let's go back to that, right? Mm-hmm. So back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when the internet was really only used by DARPA and a handful of people at universities across the, the world, uh, it was mostly empty. And the IPv4 address space at the time, or well, still, is, uh, what is it, Ronnie? 4.7 billion addresses? 4.2, something like that. Something yeah. like, that's right. I it, think it's under 4.3. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so there are a ton of addresses to them at the time. We know now that it's not enough and we're running out. But there were organizations where if they asked for IPs, they could get practically as many as they wanted. So like Ford Motor Company got a Class A, which is 16.7 million IPs. Keep me honest, Ronnie. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Sure. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, so over 16 million IPs. Uh, Apple got a Class A, which they still have today, over 16 million IPs. But the the military. Actually, got many class A's. I think there were six or seven class A's altogether, quite a few. So, we're talking about millions upon millions of addresses that they had. And the thinking back then was, you know, if you were Ford or Apple, maybe I want every computer to have its own public IP or every truck that I sell will have its own public IP. Well, that ended up not happening and and things kind of went a different route. And now we have IPv6 that takes its place. But the military, they said, we want as many IPs because you might have satellites, and all sorts of other stuff that needs IP I want every addresses. bomb to have its own IP address. Maybe, right? It depends on how they want to talk to it. Yeah. So they reserved them and then didn't use them. And they've been holding on to them. Most of them have been sitting there dark, not being used. And then, maybe coincidence, but three minutes before <laughs> President Joseph Biden was si- uh, was a, uh, inaugurated, inaugurated uh, and, and signed into office, all of, not all these IPs, but a giant chunk of them, so at least one Why? Class A all of a sudden was transferred to another company and became active uh, routes being advertised in BGP the timing has raised a few questions <laughs> Well and the company has raised some questions because it's like
1: there's no other history of this company it's it has no public-facing website has no other government contracts but it, it has the same address and, and a similar name to a company that was like a like a spam. Uh, email marketing company ten years ago or something.
2: Yeah, so there have been a few things, and and the 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 theory that's got the most ground right now, because the you know, the the Department of Defense has come out and just said, no, oh, this is routine stuff. That, yeah. that's, that's all they've said. You know, that's nothing to see here. Testing, Move yeah, along. Yeah. Um, but. The theory that's got the most uh, weight behind it right now is that this is part of a security initiative. Mm-hmm. That if they can uh, activate all these IPs and and start kind of catching traffic, anything that goes to these IPs that shouldn't be being used is obviously malicious traffic, scanning. You know, people that are, are searching the doing recon across the network, and then that's something they can block somewhere. Now, that's my question is, where, where do you plan on blocking? Are we going to do like Russia or China and build a, a, a great firewall around the country to block this stuff? So that, that's where that theory has a couple little holes in it. And we're just not sure what's happening with these IPs.
0: Well, like everything else and the article itself, it, it's a really nice article that you read, but the comments are where you actually find the more conspiracy <laughs> theories, but also sometimes good alternatives to that. So someone was saying like, more than likely because those IPs have gone unused for so long, that people were starting to squat on those yeah. and that way, what they could do by making this happen is essentially reclaim that and even start finding out like all the traffic that's been going to them as they started advertising them out. So they're essentially saying, no longer are you going to be able to do this. We're actually going to go ahead and push it out there.
2: You know, and I've done that myself before. Mm-hmm. You have your, your RFC 1918 addresses, right? The private addresses anybody can use without registering. But you can use whatever address right. you want, as long as you're not sending it out on the internet. And I, I know I've used like the research range mm. and a few others before on internal networks that I didn't want to go out. Uh, and, and this would sort of, I mean, you'd still be able to do it. But now there'd be BGP routes that are out there that send it to this company in, in Florida, uh, which is not us. <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and so you, know, you wouldn't be able to communicate on the internet, which you shouldn't have been able to do anyway.
0: Yeah, there it's kind of neat cuz I say a total like nearly 175 million addresses and uh, that's if we a lot. think about that. It's really what equivalent to about 10 or 12 class A addresses is what it comes out to be.
2: Yeah, I saw it was uh, 4% of the total addressable yeah. wow. space, which is pretty measurable. Well, and, and I did note that they clarified that they still own
1: those yeah. that that range that they just transferred it to them to to do this Test project or something but, yeah yep. but they, they they still retain ownership so it's not like Trump's like, hey, I'm gonna sell all these on the way out. And, <laughs> uh, get it. some get some money back. I mean, it, it does make.
2: That's the other question I had about like, oh, a
1: company in Florida. Is it near Mar-a-Lago?
2: <laughs> I can just imagine like eBay listings popping up, and it's it's all the furniture in the White House, like pickup only. Yeah. Yeah. Username, <laughs> pickup username Ivanka, and a address. Local pickup.
3: Yeah, we will not ship.
1: All right, fantastic. Well, um, yeah, t- tell us your conspiracy theories there. We'd love to know what you think they're doing with that. Actually, that's a good good plug. Uh, the new website techne.do we have a a uh, listener mail area so go on uh, contact us I'd love to hear what you guys think the uh, the real reason because we know
2: (laughs) we know what they're saying is uh, my theory would be that the uh, Navy has made contact with aliens. Uh, I think we had that confirmed the other week. And uh, the aliens need cable set-top boxes, which require public addresses. And uh, that's that's what this is all about.
0: And the new iPhone. So you yeah, know, they're, yeah. they're going to have to have so those. So if they
2: need like hardwired stuff, so they're they're landed. They're not, oh, yeah. Yeah, not I mean, running cables. No, I can't do it from space. That's not hospitable. <laughs> <laughs> that's like having company over and saying that the sleep in the yard. You can't well, do that. I, I saw War of the Worlds, and I know that, that our... You know, the the
1: bio, the, the, the little things we have are going to kill them.
2: Well, I, I'm pretty sure that the lizard people that are in charge of the U.S. government have that. <laughs> they, they understand the, you know, the biologies involved. The that, yeah, live in the center of the earth. My bad. <laughs> That's my mistake.
1: All right. Let's move on before we get too far down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Our next article comes to us from Slashdot.org. Dot Ransomware gang wants to short the stock price of their victims. And... I feel like shorting stock is, like, the new thing uh, that, I mean, it's obviously been done for years and years, but, you know, came into the news a lot with the whole GameStop, Reddit thing, so a lot more people are talking about it. But that is a – that's brilliant, honestly, to say that <laughs> I know this company I'm about to attack is going to go down, short the stock. That That's ingenious.
2: It, it is. Now, the, the tricky part here is, um, you know, who are you going to find that can take advantage of this, right? So, uh, if anybody were to take advantage, so let's say a ransomware group reached out to me and said, Don, we just got in on this school board. No, not a school board. It's got to be publicly traded. So, uh, Coca-Cola, right? Yeah. So, we just got in on Coca-Cola's network. We're hitting their machines. It hasn't been announced to the public yet. Uh, well, they wouldn't tell me the name of the company, I guess. So, we just compromised a soft drink company. This is going to be big. If you want in, pay us X amount of dollars and we'll tell you who it is, right? So I pay ten thousand dollars. Now they tell me the company and I go and short that stock like crazy, knowing their stock is gonna drop when the the word comes out they've got a breach. Well, that is a, a way to make some money, except it's it's insider trading. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's it's illegal on several SEC rules and uh, so it would be easy enough for the SEC to just look and say, all right, any time a company announces a breach, did anybody short stock or sell a bunch of stock prior to it? Because they already look for people selling stock. That's how they find these executives, the yeah. the CIOs that sell a bunch of stock, <laughs> New, <yeah. laughs> which is shady. And, and shorting happens all the time. So it would have to be yeah.
1: like the, the ones that, hey, this is a big position that all of a sudden came up or, hey, Don has never— Involved in the market, all of a sudden puts yep. you know five hundred thousand dollars into shorting this stuff. And
2: you know, some people say shorting is bad because you're, you're you're betting on a company failing or, or doing poorly. Yeah. But if you think about it, like when you go to Vegas when you bet, <laughs> you're 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 be- you're always betting on somebody losing. You're right. just betting on it being somebody other than you losing.
1: But, if, but I, I'm not a huge craps player, but I know like if you bet on the don't come line you're basically betting against the table and and you're the jerk that no one wants to talk to (laughs) (laughs) you're that guy now you it's a lot easier to do in the stock market because you're you know at home uh, behind a screen (laughs) so you're like i don't care if the coke people you know
0: know, it's that that old adage about uh, the way that uh, the group is called dark side crew i think is is who's actually done this well usually as far as i remember from talking with you know uh, daniel and everything like if you're a good hacker, nobody's going to ever know what you've done, but they've decided to announce that they're willing to notify crooked market traders in advance. Isn't that so, an oxymoron? Yeah, isn't that kind of— Crooked uh, market uh, traders? Uh, yeah. I
2: mean, have you seen Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. yeah. Or a Boiler Room? Yeah. Like, I, yeah. you know, these, these people are out there, and they're filthy rich yeah, until they get arrested. They all seem crooked. <laughs> uh, that's
0: my point. <laughs> just kind of neat, though, that they're like, uh, here's here's how we're going to do it. Let's just yeah. go ahead and announce how we're going to do it. And,
2: and, and there was that Revol group that uh, they had gotten Apple's blueprints for their M1 Max, and they tried to extort the, the manufacturing plant in China, which they said no, so then they switched to try and extort Apple. We still haven't seen how that one's going to end up yet.
1: Yeah. Well, back to your uh, hypothetical, Dondo. If, if they called me and said, you know, we've hacked Coke, do you want to know? You know, I would just say, no, I want you to get that recipe. <laughs> Find <laughs> that. Navigate through the system. Once. It's in, it's in the vault up in Atlanta. Right? Yeah. 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 But do you think, do you think that's not connected to the cloud somehow now? Uh,
2: so oddly enough, we did a tour of Coca-Cola world, uh, <laughs> right before the pandemic. You know, yeah. we, I was up in Atlanta with the family and they were talking about how the original vault was actually a, a train caboose that they had like outfitted or whatever to store the recipe in. So it, it is a, a physical on piece of paper recipe. Mm. Yep. Someone's got to know it though. Somebody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously gotta <laughs> yeah. configure the machines. Yeah. Or maybe it's two people and they each know half the recipe.
1: Ooh, oh, that's smart. Is it the old recipe with the cocaine? Or <laughs> maybe and Max Hedrum like, himself comes out and yeah. stirs it. Two parts, methamphetamine. <laughs> yeah, that's why Coke is so good. Alright, uh let's move on to our next segment, which this week is Who Got Pwned?
3: Looks like you're about to get pwned.
2: Fatality. Yeah!
1: All right. This one is from Gizmodo.com. Uh, Signal's CEO just hacked the cops' favorite phone cracking tool and became a legend. And so this is actually uh, this is something we've talked about. Uh, I mean, early on in Technato. We, we were talking about when Apple was kind of fighting that lawsuit about. Uh, uh, or what was it, San Bernardino shooting? I think is what yeah. this came from. They didn't something. want to decrypt the phone. Yeah, yeah, but there's the company in Israel uh, Celebrate celebrates that uh, that says, "Oh, we got it for you. Don't don't worry <laughs> about those subpoenas. We got it." But uh, now their system has been hacked, and what's interesting about it to me is it sounds like you could manipulate this very easily to put to say that whatever information you want is on that phone
2: yeah so uh basically what happened is the ceo of signal apparently was bored had some time on his hands and uh managed to get a hold of one of celebrite's uh, software packages for decrypting a encrypted iphone and what he found was that it did not implement hardly any security procedures and so he was able to craft a file that when the celebrite software ran it would read this file and execute what was inside of it and so he found where he could actually create a script that would erase all of your pictures or blank out your text messages so that the Celebrite system would show that it properly got all the data off of your phone, but a lot of data would be missing and there would be no evidence of it, no no, uh, trail whatsoever. Uh, And so what he was basically showing is, hey, this Celebrite software works. It, yes, it does allow you to get the data off of the phone, but it's very easy to circumvent. Now, he didn't release details on how to do it, but in theory, you could have like a Canary file or something that was on your phone. You can put it on there right now. And then a year from now, when the police sees your phone and Celebrite scans it, you know, it pulls the data off, it could show up as a blank phone. You've kind of prepared for it ahead of time and if he knows about it then you certainly assume that some of the more sophisticated hacking groups already know about this as well
1: but didn't it work the other way too where you could basically say oh this was on their phone you could you could plant stuff on the phone. yeah what
2: he was saying was that it basically invalidates the chain of custody that if you pull the data off celebrite software is so bad that in a court you you wouldn't be able to prove that the data had been tampered with
0: and the the other interesting thing is the the second half of that where the guy went through and he said, hey, not only is that true, but it looks like all the software is actually registered to Apple. So in other words, Apple actually owns the, uh, the intellectual property of Apple actually appears oh, really? within the software itself. So he's kind of like saying, hey, not only do I have you on this, but... This is not from you. This is, this is Apple's
2: yeah. too. <laughs> but I think as long as the government is making use of the product, I yeah. think they're probably going to get oh, some right. immunity. Oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah. If we want to put our tinfoil hat back on, yeah. do, you, do you think that Apple said, look, we
1: can't take the hit here <laughs> and, show, and show that we're actually giving you this information. Ooh. So we're going to start this, this separate company in Israel. We'll give you. We'll get you into the phone. Then we'll go. Oh my gosh! I can't believe these people did that. We were ready to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. 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 Does that company uh, link back to
2: the one in Florida? Yeah, hands? I think so. It's all run into <laughs> out of Mar-a-Lago. It's uh, you know, I Eric Trump. I could <laughs> see that. I, I could see that theory being possible. Not yeah. the Mar-a-Lago. part. Yeah. but uh, <laughs> it's um, not the
1: craziest thing in the world because it's PR. I mean, if they had, if they had given yeah. up that stuff, you know, ha- half of the country would say, you know, yay. Half the country would say, I'm never using Apple again. Now I think under it's not even an issue.
2: under Steve Jobs, you know, there was the whole Apple mission and vision. It was a a religion, not a computer company, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing. Uh, under Tim Cook's leadership, it's definitely been more corporate. Yeah, yeah I, I could see I could see taking that angle.
1: I like that. That's my first conspiracy theory. Yeah, uh, it's a good one too. Yeah, and it's legit. Um, I, I'm curious though, how many
2: appeals this leads to. Because it's uh, probably not any, uh, not right away, at least, sure, because yeah. it, this has just come out. Um, yeah, I it, it would be curious to see where the burden of proof is. So if, yeah. if the police seized the phone and they had the celebrite software you know, and, and they're showing their chain of custody at that point, it would be up to the defense to invalidate it. You know, they would have to show, yes, my client did have this canary file on here that did blah, blah, blah. Like that, that would be yeah. a hard thing to do in court.
1: But not just that their client had that, but the, but you could say, oh, no, the police used this to plant this evidence and show that it looked like it was on my phone.
2: Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's possible. But, you know, that's true of the evidence room as it is right now. Yeah. You know, the police just put a bag of cocaine with my name on it in the evidence room, and there it is. Signed it. That's never so. happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I always write Ronnie's name on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows Ronnie's that. Okay. Sure. Yeah, who doesn't do that? Return if... Please return if found, right? <laughs> Ronnie Wong, Carol. Yeah, here's yeah. here's the his address. North <laughs> Florida.
1: There you go. All right. Our next article comes to us from bleepingcomputer.com. QNAP removes backdoor account in NAS backup disaster recovery app. So... There was a backdoor.
2: Yeah, <laughs> we have a couple QNAPs over there. We have QNAPs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so QNAP has joined the ranks of Fortinet and Cisco and many other uh, high-profile hardware vendors out there for having hard-coded backdoor credentials in their hardware. Uh, now, QNAP, as a company, we we use them, and they have some really neat stuff for remote support, where their people can SSH into your box to to fix problems. Uh, and it uses dynamically generated passwords and certificates and expiring accounts. So you know they do follow good security practices for the most part but this was in their hybrid backup software that would allow you to back up your your qnap nas into a cloud location uh that they just had some hard-coded credentials in there and uh They discovered it. We're not sure if anybody was able to actually take advantage of it prior to uh, their discovery and pushing an update, but uh, there was a study done, and I'm trying to remember who it was that did the study, uh, that showed that this one particular exploit, uh, just in the month of, uh, well, actually, it was from March 21st through April 21st, they went from having like 30 reports of this particular type of malware on a QNAP all the way up to 353 submissions just in a 30-day period. So it looks like uh, attackers had been taking advantage of this, using it as a vector to be able to get into the NAS. Now, if your NAS was not exposed to the internet, you weren't at risk because the attackers didn't have a way to get into it but many people that use the cloud services would open up ports on their firewall and that's where the weakness would come in. So uh, they have pushed an update. If you update the HBS, it will it'll remove the, the vulnerable pieces uh, and protect you, but you do need to uh, be aware that you may already have ransomware or malware on your system as a result.
1: Hmm. Now, is it a,
2: a metaphor, but I, I just thought about the
1: fact that our server room over there literally has a back door that goes to the outside. The server room doesn't,
2: doesn't. Yeah. It? Oh, it does. Yeah. It does do. Yeah, that's right. It's painted black, so mm. I don't normally see it. Yeah. And, I, uh, have, have we considered removing our hard coded back door? Uh, you know, we could. Except there's first off, there's there's like no sensitive data in that server room. All that's our true. sensitive data is stored in the cloud, publicly in S3 buckets. Uh, <laughs> Super <laughs> secure. So, no, it, it, it's all stored elsewhere. So it's really just video files in there. Uh, but the other thing is that door is locked like that one you, you can't even use a key card to get through yeah, it right sure. it's a it's a physical access a, only door couple uh, volts. but that in the old days that used to be a battery room and then the server room was where ah. studio four is now that's where you know so that's why they needed
1: the, the back door to get the batteries in and out because correct so it was heavy. a fire yeah. code thing yep for so. us
2: it doesn't matter all right and and for anyone
1: watching at home or the people that want a short <laughs> it per tv stock that doesn't exist. Uh, just know there's an armed guard there at all times by that door. <laughs> uh, I should point that out. That's right. <laughs> all right. Uh, our next one is actually a Deja News from last week. So let's play that. Deja News. We did notice last week actually during the live Technado that um, we had some some bandwidth where kind of our frame rate went down a little bit. And it was right around when I played the Deja News um, Beyonce mm-hmm. Song, So, we're wondering if we just got flagged or. Or, or if Beyonce was crippling the internet. That's true. We, uh, we did break the internet. Yep. That's probably what it was. All right. Uh, this one is from com. Linux kernel team rejects University of Minnesota researchers' apology. Uh, UMN researchers probed for weaknesses in patch approval. And Greg K. H wasn't amused. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Greg K through H. Uh, no, so so we talked about this last week, where basically they used um, a real uh, real instance of Linux to s- send up these uh, these code changes that had little Trojan horses in them, essentially, and test out uh, how those uh, patches were approved
2: and. They were approved, right? But that's an almost not totally inaccurate <laughs> description. Thank you. So, so what it. they did is they pushed up, uh, they call them hypocrite updates. You know, They were pushing these patches up into the the Linux kernel for approval that would reintroduce bugs that had been previously patched to use this to basically create security vulnerabilities in the Linux kernel. Uh, They were testing on the real Linux kernel. Uh, These changes did not actually make it into full production, so they 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 were found and and stopped. Uh, But as a result of their actions... Every update submitted by the University of Minnesota is now under review and they're no longer able to push updates into the kernel. So the activities of these two students and their graduate advisor led to all of the developers yeah. at the university getting banned. So the uh, the two researchers came out and wrote an apology letter. So they said <laughs> that they're sorry. They shouldn't have tested yeah. in the production environment. They should have thought about other people than themselves and so on. Uh, so they, they wrote a, a letter Um and basically, the kernel development head, Greg, uh, they, they write it at KH. I don't actually know what to say. I think it's Crow Hartman. Uh, but either way, uh, basically, he said, uh, yeah. apology not accepted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he first
1: said, like, you guys can a- allow, uh, will allow future patches if they, quote, provide proof and you can verify it. But then he said, really, why would you waste your time doing that extra work? And, uh, and. Yeah, it's basically they don't care.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it, when, once you break that trust, yeah, uh, when you've got an open source project like this, where the majority of the people are volunteers, and somebody takes advantage of that system, it's it's just not it's not worth it to to start putting. You, you don't have the monetary resources to start doing all this secure code review and so on, which. I think is a little ironic because you always hear people say one of the reasons why you should run Linux. Linux is great because it's open source. You can review the source code. So, you know, it doesn't have vulnerabilities, but the reality is nobody's reviewing this source code right. for the, the bulk of what you deploy when you install the Linux operating system. And so, uh, as a result, it's not really any more or less secure than other operating systems. But There is a little trust built that the
1: fact that they did catch these, as you said. So yeah, it gives you a little bit of faith and, um, you know, the UMN said, you know, hey, we want you to know we would never intentionally hurt the Linux kernel. And, yeah, and that I love that last response. They basically said, hey, we sent you a letter telling you what you need to do. So until those actions are taken, we do not have any fur- or anything further to discuss about this issue. So. Oh,
2: actually, uh, just for clarification, the, the way that it was caught was that they told them. So, yes, yeah. oh, uh, yeah, so they, they, they didn't catch it on their own. Uh, and then the researchers actually said, oh, by the way, we just introduced a bug back in. You approved it. Uh, but it it didn't make it out into a kernel that we would have actually installed and used.
0: I, I think the big issue, at least for maybe uh, the you know the the guy whatever his name, is, which I can't <laughs> pronounce and say, uh, is that they did it, but they didn't like say, "Hey, we're going to do this." I think they kind of announced it after, like, "Hey, what we did, did we dish. just do?" Yeah. <laughs> They're the asking e- forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, it,
2: it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission, right? Well, not That's in a- this case. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it doesn't well, always work. Yeah. You and can ask forgiveness, you're not always given it. I would not have known these guys' names no. two weeks ago, but now I do. So uh, they, they certainly got what they needed out of it. Uh, the rest of the student researchers at University of Minnesota, they're the ones that will suffer right. from this a little bit. Uh, but, you know, they can always go and publish kernel patches independently, not as part of the university. And, and that would be the, the way around that. And I'll just transfer <laughs> Trans- yeah. yeah,
1: That's what I'd do.
2: I, I actually don't know about University of Minnesota. I mean, they, if they're pushing kernel patches, they must be must have a pretty good tech program. So transferring might be painful. Yeah, but you don't want to be associated with that. You don't want that black mark on your on your <laughs> diploma. Well, maybe you do. It's it's weird the things you get credit for these I think days. So. Like street cred. Oh, like we're the people that hacked. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I like that. All right, hey, I want to let you know about a couple things coming up from IT Pro TV. First of all, there is a webinar today, Thursday, April twenty ninth. Uh, going cloud native with Linux. Move your Linux workload to the cloud. That's at 2 p.m. Eastern time with Tamika Reed, one of the founders of the Women in Linux Association. So uh, if you are listening to this right when it came out, go ahead and join us there for that. At uh, Go to itpro.tv slash webinars. You can see all the upcoming webinars. like the next one after that, navigating the ISC Squared Certifications, SSCP, CCSP, or CISSP. And that is with Adam Gordon. And that's taking place on Thursday, May 6, 2 p.m. Eastern time. So all those are over at itpro.tv slash webinars, and you can sign up for them. And while you're on that internet, head over to the new Technado website at Technado or Technado.do or Technado.com if, you, if you're a loser. Um, but uh, you, you can listen to the latest episodes. You can contact us, like I said, and you can also hit that button in the upper right, sponsored by IT Pro. TV and that's where you can get a 30% off coupon code for the lifetime of your personal plan to IT Pro TV and you can also request a team trial to find out about all the great features available to teams like the Pro Portal uh, that's all over at techne.do and technado.com and stuff like that so
2: well there we go Nailed it!
1: Hey, Ronnie. Hey, <laughs> thank <laughs> you for for jumping in. I
0: appreciate uh, being dragged in at last moment. Yeah. Well, it
2: was <laughs> I, honestly it does kind of highlight uh, how little Daniel does. Yeah, I was gonna say it was, it was nice not, to, not to be yelled at. I feel <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: like for well, a week. <laughs> That's what it normally like normally I just go home feeling defeated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I if you don't need me to do anything, go ahead and call on me. I'm fine. Yeah. All right. Let's see if uh, we can extend that vacation for Daniel. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. And thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next week, right here on TechNATO with Don Pizzette.